yeah, you need a, you need a product team to say no. To me, as well as everybody else, say no, no. Remember that, remember that agreement we had on the product strategy that you signed off on? In order to execute that plan, we can't do your crazy weird idea from the red eye. From ProfitWell Recur, it's Protect the Hustle, a show about those who are in the trenches actually doing the work. I'm Patrick Campbell. And I'm Ben Hillman. And on this episode, Matthew Bellows, founder and chairman of the board of Yesware, talks about how growth and success stems strictly from unrelenting focus. With enough time or money, we can essentially build anything, especially when it comes to the world of software. We live in this wonderful time where we can basically put together on, so I, many I different things. I still want my teleportation. Your tele okay. So <laughs> yes, we don't have teleportation in the maybe traditional definition. We just need more money and more time dedicated to that. But if you think about something like Uber or you know flying even, we kind of have teleportation, especially if you were to compare that to the perspective of someone who was using a horse and buggy maybe 100 years ago. Okay, we'll agree to disagree, but I think that the spirit of your point is true. When it comes to web apps or any feature roadmap, you have a certain number of resources which then allow you within a certain timeline to build whatever you want or need, or to put it better, anything your customer wants or needs. Sure. The, the scary part of that, though, is that it can feel like a death by a thousand paper cuts, right? You know, you have your vision that wants you to do one thing, you have one cohort of customers that wants you to do another thing, then you have that really, really annoying customer who, you know, isn't paying you anything that wants you to do a completely different thing and so on and so forth, right? Yeah, but I mean, who do you listen to? How do you overcome all mm. of this optionality? That's that's what being in a subscription company really feels like. There's these infinite possibilities and limited resources, and all of them are going to push you in so many different directions. Yeah, this can be tough, but the unconventional wisdom indicates that success stems strictly from this unrelenting focus, right? So those companies that pull themselves in a million different directions, reactively building the roadmap or their company, they tend to fail. Those focus or those who focus in on, on one truth and who work to dig deeper on that truth, they're the ones who tend to succeed. So is it is this always true? Like most things, you know, it's never, you know, completely binary, right? Because there are market dynamics, there's, you know, different uh, competitive pressures and things like that. So I, I would say it's probably not always true. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, it, it can also be problematic. You think about something like Trello, they were certainly a success, you know, selling for hundreds of millions of dollars, but they weren't as much of a success as they probably could have been since they didn't build out all of the marginal features that most project management software products tend to build out to go up market, stay in the mid market and, and the like. Sure. And then I think that on the other hand, you have Stripe, which has been mm. massively successful because they focus so religiously on payments and, and only step out mildly into other features that buttress payments. Yeah. And this, this whole debate is why I'm actually really excited that we had the chance to sit down with Matthew Bellows, who's the founder of Yesware and who was quite literally my first introduction to the startup community um, when I didn't even know what a startup was. Yeah, and Matt actually started his career in the world of sales, running mm. sales organizations at Interstep and Engage before founding a company that was first at selling media to mobile games and entertainment apps. Yeah, and back then, you know, mobile 
Labs Entertainment. That was a, a novel concept. You know, there's mm-hmm. flip phones, basically, as we'll find out later. Uh, but then he went on to found Yesware, who was one of the pioneers in the sales productivity and enablement spaces. But because the space heated up so quickly, Matthew and the crew really needed to batter down the hatches and focus relentlessly, which is why he's in a unique position to talk to us about not letting the death by a thousand paper cuts mentality actually creep into your company. Before we get into that, though, let's jump in and hear from Matthew on his background, particularly how sales experience helped him actually focus on why he needed to build Yesware. This isn't your first company, right? This is my second Greenfield startup. The first one was a bet that people would play video games on their cell phones, which in 2001 was actually, you know, somewhat <laughs> of a bet. Yeah, I don't know, yeah. My mom actually, at the time I told her what I was doing, my mom was like, that's a stupid idea. Like, I was like, mom, no, okay, are you serious? But it turned out to be true, but we started that very, very early. We started that in 2001. My partner at Yesware and I started that business together in 2001. And it was a content business. We sold advert. I sold the advertising. He built the site. It was very early, but we were the first site to really cover this space, you know, as a as a media company. And so we built up a good business actually, and ended up selling that to CNET, which is GameSpot, and now they're CBS Interactive. But we sold that in two thousand four. So then I went off, and my wife had twins, and then Cashman and the team moved out to San Francisco. Had a couple other jobs. Was it something where, I mean, going from video games to sales software, yeah. I mean, obviously you were selling advertising and stuff, but was you and your partner so focused on like where there's value, we should build value? Or is it something like, you know, because intuitively you might yeah. be like, oh, let's build another video game type company or yeah. a media company of some sort. Yeah. I would say the common thread is about learning. Like, what are we learning about? What are we interested in? What are we learning about? So for video games, for mobile phone games, we were both working through a series of acquisitions, ended up at a company called CMGI, which was a big internet incubator. And we were both in the digital advertising world. And so I was building ad networks and selling advertising to ad networks. So I knew the ad space really well. And I was like, there's something there, but most of it is broken, but there's a niche of it that's quite good, which is the focused publication on a particular niche topic with high value readers. And he was like, I'm really into portable devices, Palm Pilots and stuff like that. And so I was like, I'm personally really into video games. I love playing video games. That's a big industry. Where do these pieces come together? And he was like, that's a crazy idea. And I was like, I, I know, but like, I'm going to get fired one of these days because this company's not going to last. And he was like, well, I'm not because I'm an engineer and I could work forever. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to go off and learn my HTML and get a site together. So I got it going while I was still employed at Engage at CMGI. And I did a bunch of interviews and I started to get some yeah. it was content marketing. It was basically yeah. like writing about these people who were making these games for Cool. It was called WAP, right? It was yeah. wireless access protocol. It was like these web pages, static web pages on phones. And I started writing all these articles about these people and they started sending it around and stuff like that. And so then I showed Cashman and he was like, that is the ugliest freaking web page I've ever seen <laughs> in my life. I'll help you at that on the weekends. That's cool. I'm like, all right, let's go. And so, yeah. so we you know, got him involved and he was totally priceless and we built a company out of it. And at the end of the day, it turned out that pre-iPhone, 
This was a very limited market, limited by the carriers who were deciding what games get featured on the top of the handsets and therefore what games make money. So we got an offer to sell to first to Ziff Davis, which is a magazine publishing company we had a content deal with, and then to CNET and we took the CNET deal and it was great. It was awesome. And then I just kept, you know, I've been a salesperson for most of my career. I just kept seeing the same problem again and again and again, which is like, I don't want to tell the sales guys what to do. I don't want them spending an hour or two typing stuff into CRM. They want to be more effective and make more money and close more deals. The current CRM is not helping with that. It's more overhead than actually empowering. So can we make a piece of software that would help a salesperson be more effective, gather the data from their activity and represent that for a sales manager or sales VP to help them make better decisions and overall create benefit in the system, grow the top line of the company. And that was the inspiration. And basically I called up Cashman and I was like, I gave him that pitch. And I said, the business plan is we help them make more money. They give us some of it. And Cashman was like, yeah, I could probably build that. <laughs> and so we started. And do you think it, that that early traction, did that help him kind of come on board? Totally. Was it, yeah. Was totally. Really the thing about like people say to me, like, how do you get as a non-technical person, which is me, how do you get an engineer to like buy into your thing? And my answer is always like, you just do whatever it takes to show them that it's going to be real because they have real opportunity cost. They could get a high paying job at any company in Boston, right? And you as an unemployed sales guy have nothing. <laughs> you got to do whatever it takes yeah. to get them to feel like this is going to work. And that means learn HTML and make a web page, write content about it, make a salami sandwich when he comes, you know, like whatever it takes. Why don't you make me salami sandwiches? Do you even like salami? Well, no, but it's the thought that counts, right? Well, yeah, but I do a lot of like salami sandwich type things, right? I mean, I help you get equipment, I coordinate travel for you, and I'm pretty sure I've definitely gotten you probably a month's worth of food at this point throughout our tenure together. Okay, I think collectively you've given me a salami sandwich, like one salami sandwich. Okay, <laughs> I'll check my credit card statement and we'll confirm this. But I, I think this is a really interesting point to maybe get a little bit more serious again. You know, as a CEO, especially in the early days, there's this, you know, whatever it takes attitude. Your job is to quite literally move the mission forward by taking everything off of people's plates in order to let them focus on the next task at hand. And this is where I believe the relentless mindset is really built because you become so adept at putting out fires and reacting to problems that your threshold for what is too difficult becomes higher and higher. This has a negative effect too though, right? Like, especially as you scale. Yeah, absolutely. I think the reactive behavior can cause loads of problems because you almost get addicted to snuffing out the problems. And if there aren't problems or there are problems, but they're small, you end up doing what I, I like what Dan Martell says about this, where you throw grenades into your own business because then it creates a problem that you get to clean up, right? So how do you get over that? Uh, <laughs> I think it's hard. I mean... I struggled, I still struggle with this on some level and I struggled with this on other levels that I got over, but I think it really comes down to people, um, which, you know, mostly everything within building a company really comes down to because you need to surround yourself with the right people who can take up the mantle of these different pieces and, and kind of be the champion of that particular part of the organization. But it also comes down to the focus and mission of the business. That mission acts as this constitution within the business. So you can go in and basically judge decisions or questions 
or just any kind of dissonance by that mission. And if they don't push it forward, you, you have these checks and balance situation that kind of keeps you in check if you bring in those ideas that just don't fit the mission or don't fit the mission right now. Yeah, I like that. And, and this is what Matthew talks about a lot, especially in the early mm. Yesware days where you know, that focus was going to be, were they going to just build another CRM? Were they going to attack a point solution where he had trouble? You know, what was the focus going to be? Exactly. And, and let's listen to Matthew tell that story and, and focus how, you know, blindingly obvious the mission came to them. Yeah, yeah. there were a bunch of companies pre-marketing automation that were trying to do these kind of things. There were certainly companies like ACT and Goldmine that were like content yeah. management, and sorry, uh, contact management really. Yeah. It's, it's more like uh, they became CRM systems, but they were focused on the individual salesperson. And then there were companies like Genius and a couple others that were trying to do what we do, but they all ended up, for whatever reason, moving into marketing and selling to the CMO. And we just said like, there's an enormous opportunity here to sell to the salesperson. And so, yeah, we were definitely one of the first people to sort of target that audience and yeah. focus on that problem set. Was it just not that way back then? It was like not that way. Okay. No, it was really like, it was a blindingly obvious opportunity. I couldn't believe it. And we, and Cashman and I, you know, we went around to all the VCs and the angel groups and the, you know, the different micro angels and macro VCs and all these different groups, you know, pitched probably like 45, 50 of them in uh, December 2010. You know, Cashman was living on a tropical island at the time so off the coast of Brazil and wandering the cold streets of Kendall Square. I'm like, are you sure you really want to do this? And uh, most of them said, like, that's not a category. There is no software for salespeople. That's it insane. doesn't exist. It's insane to even just conceptualize that thing. and I'm like I know it doesn't exist that's the point yeah. <laughs> it's got to exist we should make it you know so that's what was kind of the way that you validated all right this is an idea that we need to raise money for and we can raise money for from a sort of like MBA business opportunity standpoint it was really just about that business plan we help them make more money they give us some of it that works. That's it. Like that's, <laughs> that's kind of all you need to like say that. right yeah. and and then the question was like well then how do you help someone that requires product development and you know we did a bunch of like prototyping and a bunch of mock-ups and uh, we had this team that basically like Cashman and I would make PowerPoint UI because we didn't know how to use balsamic so I would like do a PowerPoint UI and then we'd send it to the team and they would cut it up into pieces and they'd make clickable prototypes for us and so we'd like show it to different salespeople and say like try to send an email and that got some good feedback that way even after we raised our seed round of financing we had a prototype and the first version of yesware prototype was a standalone email client that was like not built into email the way it is now the standalone thing that you'd like futz with your imap settings to use you know yesware and that approach gave us tons of flexibility in terms of the features that we could offer in the ui but it was a big user adoption hurdle. Yeah. We opted for a second approach, but we raised the seed round on that prototype. It really wasn't until our board members were like, are you sure you want to bring that prototype to market? <laughs> and I was like, oh, well, I, do, I thought you that was the plan. gave us the money to do it. And they were like, hey, why don't you just revisit that assumption? And so we threw that away and we built the browser extension, which you know, was the foundation of Yesware. And the first feature that we built was templates. And that didn't really work that well, honestly. Like people were like, oh, it's cool. 
Why do you think it didn't work? It's not that easy to get into. You have to invest into it. You have to figure out why. It's like a productivity hack and productivity is kind of lame for salespeople. But tracking, I do believe, I'm not sure about this, but I do believe we were the first company to take the marketing automation trick of a trackable pixel and put it into a one-to-one -one sales email. Pretty sure you were, because I, that's how I, I at least perceive you guys as the first. I think we yeah. did. And that, we did this, like I would take my laptop around to other people at this incubator and show it to them and they were like Yeah, it was like, it was like crack. Yeah. Like I remember, I remember the yes where, because there was, yeah. I, I might be remembering this incorrectly, but there weren't a lot of other features at that time. No, there was templates and then tracking because yeah. the guy who we hired to do the JavaScript for the tracking thing was, his contract was up in two weeks. And so he had one more feature to do and he was going to do another templates feature. And I'm like, just try the tracking thing, That's dude. That's amazing. Yeah. And was that something that you like validated or is it something you're like, oh, this is a cool idea or like what was like, what was the detail there if you can remember? I think it was the sense that like it works for marketing people to know they want to know who's opening their emails and why. So it's probably gonna work for salespeople too. Like salespeople live in a world where they get very little feedback about how it's going. And so anything you can do to give them a sense of like what's working and what's not working and give them some actionable insight, like yeah. call this person. Totally. They're reading your email on this phone, call them. They opened it 12 times. Yeah, like yeah. that's valuable emotional experience and it's easy to set up, it's easy to try, it's easy to get hooked into. I'm pretty sure fairly quickly you moved from just the tracking to, you had like a limit, right? Like a hundred per month or something yep. like that. Yep. And then you moved into more of kind of like CRM light and yeah. then into kind of full, almost full CRM in some cases. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. I mean, my big fear at that point was like, okay, tracking is super easy to do. It's going to get commoditized. Everyone's going to have it. We need to add more value to the product overall so that we're not just seen as a tracking company. So we need to build goals and maps and templates better and integration with the CRM and all these other things. Looking back on it, honestly, like, I don't have a lot of regrets in my life, but we're just now, we have a team rebuilding our tracking stack with a whole bunch of new features. And it's like, shit, why didn't we do this like five years ago? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I've, I've why didn't we just focus on tracking as an API? That would have been a whole other thing you could have done. What's like the positioning now? Is it like we're sales enablement, CRM? Like what, what do you kind of see like? you know, when you're selling, like, yes, where your team's selling, yes, where? We're the same that we've always been, which is like help salespeople be more effective. We've always struggled with it. And frankly, the, the segment, the industry has struggled with it too, is sure. it sales acceleration and sales enablement and yeah. sales. And the reason why I think it hasn't, there's no name that's stuck sure. for our segment of enterprise software is because it's just so new. People don't know what it's going to be. And yeah. there's so much innovation happening across all the different realms of connectivity and sales effectiveness, even though it feels much busier and more crowded than it was certainly five years ago, we're in like the round two or three of, of a very long game. I mean, this is a significant tens of billions of dollars segment in the sales, in the enterprise software world. Yeah. And still, you don't have a situation where the CIOs of the Global 1000 have this as a line item on their budget and every year they bring it out to bid. Like we're nowhere near that. We're, yeah. we're maybe five years away from that. Is there a particular part of making salespeople more effective that you're like, yeah, I don't know if the software's there quite yet, but that's where, where I think this market's gonna go. Like time, you know, 
targeting, effectiveness? I think we do it pretty well, but there's a lot more to do there is to just help the salesperson figure out what to do next. What's the highest value activity to do next? Because as a salesperson, I'm managing tens to dozens to hundreds of relationships and each of them has a different history and a different future and each of them has a different stage of the relationship. And I've got certain blocks on my time and I don't want to try to figure out what I should work on next. I want the computer to tell me what to do next and I want to do it myself as a person. Yeah. Like, yeah, we'll give you the recommended text and things like that, but I'm going to craft it. I'm I, gonna, I, I'm, yeah. It's my relationship with you as a, as a prospect, but I want to know, do I need to talk to you next or you next or you next or, or do I need to take a break or do I need to do some research or do I need to learn this new product or do I need to get some exercise? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And I think the computer can be really, really helpful in that way. And I think then salespeople are much more free to go and do the thing they're best yeah. at. Where do you think is that? Why aren't we there yet? Is it understanding in the market or yeah. is it just data that we don't have? It's yet, a or? lot of things. I mean, it's, it's the integration of at least three major streams of data, which are email, phone, and calendar. And then the machine learning required to actually make oh, sense yeah. of those things and then generate sensible recommendations per salesperson, per time. It's a really hard problem. It's very difficult. What I like about Matthew's description about Yesware is that you'll notice it's squarely focused on this world of pushing sales folks to be better at sales by removing all of the extraneous tasks and pieces of the sales process for a salesperson to then do the thing that they are uniquely qualified to do, which is sell. Yeah, no, definitely agree with that statement. You you even see it what he thinks the future holds with basically all of the mechanical pieces of a salesperson's mm. job being taken care of. And, and I know that today that isn't really a novel concept, but having that vision and mission when Yesware started is actually quite revolutionary, especially since most sales tools up until that point were basically optimized around business functions or the managers of the sales teams, not on the people who are actually doing the frontline work. Yeah, and one thing that bothers me here, though, is that there are an incredible amount of things that they could do even with that mission. You know, mm. Think all about the different things you could do to help a salesperson be better at their job, from just getting them a salami sandwich feature to something that automatically tells them which leads to call. Yeah, you're not going to let that salami sandwich situation down, right? I'm going to have to make PB&Js or something in the office uh, yeah, someday, like right? That. Yeah, I, I think you're right, though. But that's that's where that focus comes in, right? You need to break that mission down, evaluate the pieces that will have the highest impact, and then finally decide using some sort of a framework of biggest impact against the time that it'll take to implement. Yeah, and the process has to be painful when you're trying to build products for people that sell. Yeah. I mean, there's just so many different types of people who sell all different types of things. Yeah, and sales folks are not the easiest people to sell to. I don't think they're as hard to sell to as developers, but they are definitely <laughs> definitely pretty picky uh, picky individuals to sell to. Mm -hmm. But let's, let's get Matthew's take here because he went from being the first in the market to basically creating an entire category that exploded with other competitors. And pay careful attention to how he helps rein in those, quote, red-eye thoughts that every CEO tends to have about changing the business constantly. I mean, there, there's lots of different parts that are hard about product development, but everybody wants to be growing faster and the grass is always greener. Always. And so you're always like, 
what are they doing that we're not doing? And how, you know. Oh, I really like that Instagram campaign. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and then, and then you do get, you get the feature requests from people saying, hey, I tried this at the other thing. And, then, you know, da, da, da. and frankly, like when we started, one of the problems with being the first mover is that like you don't have to segment. You don't have to decide who your target customer is. You just build your software and suddenly we've got everyone from individual part-time real estate agent to global 1,000, 1,000 salespeople using your stuff, and that's your customer base. And you're sort of like, oh, okay, what's your target market? Well, it's like all of that. We're serving them all. And that works when there's no competition, yeah. but when there's competition, then you have to say, all right, you gotta pick one. And a bunch of the competitors that we had early on never made that transition. And a bunch of the competitors that we have now have been much more focused on segments and have done well because of it. We've had to do some soul searching over the last 18 months to 12 months ago to really be like, who are we trying to serve? And then get really, really clear about that. And we did it. And now it's like, we want to help end user salespeople do their job better. And what that really looks like is people that are on Gmail or O365 who are managing tens to hundreds of relationships, not the one guy who's camped in Bentonville doing Walmart and not the person who's spamming 10,000 contacts a month. You know, the people that are really managing a set number of relationships and they're probably generating, you know, 150 to 500K of take home pay. Not the super low end SDRs that are just trying to set appointments. Dial for dollars people, like there's plenty of software folks that are gonna aim at the pray, spray and pray kind of folks and not the high-end enterprise sales, like close one deal a year and I made my number kind of people. Yeah. It's a spot that we know well and we have a lot of data on and we have a lot of people yeah. that use the software for that. And then we'll get other things around it. This has been in a while, that targeting? Like, yeah. okay, so getting the team on board, yeah. right? Because. You know, in the early days, you're kind of like, ah, oh, we're still trying to figure this out. Like, we have product market fit and it's growing, but we're still kind of doing everything. You know, maybe all people, not yeah. maybe that dramatic. But yeah. when you start to figure this out, how do the, how do you make sure it's evangelized amongst the team? Is it just very much like, this is what we're doing, this is what we're doing, and then like the blinders? People handle this. CEOs handle this in different ways, and I'm not sure. Like, I'm the best, most effective CEO at handling that kind of change. But at the end of the day, what works comes through. Yeah. And even if individuals think that, hey, we should really be selling to big companies, like you pound your head against that wall for a couple quarters, three quarters, four quarters, and suddenly you realize like, that person's not making any money. Yeah. And they have a crappy work experience. It's probably not a good thing for us to pursue. Let's focus on this place where we're making tons of money. And maybe that person then, and frankly, we've had this where those kind of people are like, you know what? I want to go close big enterprise deals. Okay, yeah. there's plenty of companies going to do that. Go do that. We just had an awesome rep leave after three years here for Salesforce. And she was like, I love working here. Yeah. I made a bunch of money. And I was like, I know you made a bunch of money. I really <laughs> signed those paychecks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I want to go learn something else. Yeah. I want to go learn to sell bigger deals. Well, Salesforce That's is a nice great deal. place to do it. So that kind of stuff is fine but eventually like you have to get to the right spot to be focused. And from a product perspective, do you just make sure you have the right person leading that team who's gonna say no a lot or, cause I know, I mean, speaking from experience, yeah. it's like, oh, that's flashy, like you yeah. said, and like, 
that's really hard to turn down sometimes. Yeah. Oh my God, I mean, and, and I am particularly famous within Yesware for emails from the red eye or emails at 3 a.m. Yeah. being like, I've got a new product idea, you know, two pages single spaced about how we got to revolutionize X. And I know the product team gets those things and they're just like, oh my God. No matter if it takes a day. No matter, yeah. I don't care. It's like, we gotta stay focused on this thing because software development is very complicated, especially at scale. We have more than 60,000 paying users of Yesware and it's mission critical for them. If it goes down for five minutes, we hear about it and that's a lot of money. It's gotta be up and reliable all the time yeah. for that scale people. And it's in their inbox for eight or 10 or 12 hours a day. And so well, they're using while we can- Literally every email they send. Yeah, like yeah. while we can be innovative and, and flexible, we also have to respect the fact that it takes time to build good software. There's time for innovation and crazy ideas. And then there's time for execution and you gotta separate those two things. It takes a special kind of person to be able to rein in a crazy idea CEO. Are you implying something, man? Are you speaking from experience here? Or what, what, what are you trying to get at? I will neither confirm nor I will okay, deny that. Okay, all right. Well, you're, you're right maybe in the statement, not necessarily in the implication here. But this is where that relentless focus comes in, right? That focus and mission doesn't stem from any one person or even a small group of people. It stems from the entity that you've actually built. And I think this is where the company and mission become the driving force that is then curated and kind of stewarded by the leaders of the company and executed on by the entire team. And this is where the whole concept of servant leadership comes into play mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. But this expands beyond that to checks and balances, right? You argue about all the ideas, measure them against the mission, stack them up, and then lock them into this kind of short timeline, which then allows a backlog to stew for the next planning period. And I think rarely should you drop everything and change direction, even though it feels like you should probably do that constantly based on the market and a whole host of other things. And I worry about this because sometimes you end up not moving quickly to major shifts. Sure. I, I think that you can definitely go too far on this, but those shifts rarely happen, or at least we feel like they happen all the time, but in reality, they just don't. And this is why I loved Matthew specifically saying there's a time for innovation and there's a time for execution. I think sometimes those two get muddled together too much, especially when you're really, really excited about something. Right. And and you're already working off of limited resources mm -hmm. like we were talking about before. So, you know, it's, it's your job to make sure that you're setting up your team to be successful and being able to stick to your North Star is essential there. This is where focusing on the fundamentals also comes into play, especially around things like people and your culture. And Matt had a lot to say about those axes as well. Yeah, and listen in on Matt opening up about how to find the right type of salesperson, as well as how we all have imposter syndrome, but most of us don't want to admit it, even when we clearly have had some success. What's like the characteristic of just like kick-ass salesperson? Like what, what do you look at? Like, cause you've seen, you obviously have salespeople here You've seen a lot of different like success and failure, I'm sure. Actually, one of, the, one of the things I love about sales more than anything else is that there is no one characteristic. There is no one type of salesperson who's good. Lots of salespeople can succeed in different ways. So some salespeople are like just funnel people, right? I do a certain number of calls. I send a certain number of emails. I get a certain number of hits. Dun, 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 dun. And I drive activity to the top of the funnel and I close a certain amount. Some salespeople are like, you know what, it's all about the relationship. 
And if I connect genuinely with two people a month, I'm going to close one of them for $100,000. And then there's everywhere in between. Some salespeople are way more technical. Some salespeople are way more charming. Some salespeople are way harder working. Some people are just like geniuses that are lazy. So one of the reasons I love sales and one of the problems, frankly, that I have with a lot of like the sales methodology that we're this in the water right now, it's like like you just follow this script and you just do this process, then X will happen. And at scale, like that's true. But for an individual salesperson, like I never, that never worked for me. Is it good to have a mix or should you try to find like the same archetype for, for a salesperson? I actually don't think you can find that the homogeneous, you know, group of, you know, clones. I I think it's more like as a sales manager, you have to assemble a a portfolio and work with them one-on-one to figure out what they need and how they can get better. Yeah. At the end of the day, I mean, and sales managers do this now, right? At the end of the day, everyone's got their quota. You got to meet your quota. If you're not meeting your quota, then how do you get your quota? If you're way below your quota, then maybe you should, you know, find something else to do. But how you get there is the interesting part. And and so from a sales manager point of view, you're looking at your team and you're saying, this person's like this, this person's like this. How do I help that person be more successful? How do I play on their strength versus their strength? It's very much like being a baseball manager, a basketball manager. Yeah, coach. I mean, and you also have to understand, and then you look at the opposing team, if you yes, will, exactly. you know, and yep. then you kind of figure out like, okay, this is how we're going to, you know, yep. play the game, which yep. is really cool. And it's, it's more complicated than playing basketball, right? There's no rules and there's no referee. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's the minimal, like everything. Yeah. So yeah. that's interesting because you've seen, I mean, I've seen companies where they're like, this is the playbook I ran at Oracle. This yeah. is the playbook I ran it. And then just, sure. just fails miserably because it's more about looking at the framework that's going to work within those resources. If you yeah. Know. And there's a tremendous survivor bias around those kind of things too. So, yeah. so like the Bain companies that Bain has a very prescribed sales process. A lot of their companies, they say, here's how we do it. You sit this way, you sit, like you organize yeah, your that. teams this way. It's like really, really specific. Yeah. And you know what? For the companies that go public under that system, it works great. But for the ones that doesn't work, like you never hear about them. So building a sales plan is more complicated than just your playbook. And you find that out when you talk to sales leaders at global 1000 companies, because you know what they say? We're reorging. We're going to redo our account plan. We're changing our territories. We're redoing our sales training. Like they're always trying to do new stuff and develop better. What's something that you like struggled with in your career at any point that you overcame and, and how did you overcome it? doesn't have to be profound. So many either. things. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, this is the second time me being a CEO and the first time it just seemed like such a lark, like so improbable and so <laughs> hilarious. And my job was basically like, sell ads to my friends and go to cocktail parties. (laughs) But Yesware has been more demanding than that. It's been longer. It's been many, many, many more people. It's been in a much more challenging product environment and, you know, customers with much bigger expectations. So I have definitely struggled with what they call the imposter syndrome, which is the fear that they're going to find out that I'm a sham (laughs) and that I'm like, totally faking it. I have no freaking idea what I'm doing and I'm totally making it up as I go along. And they're going to realize like, oh my God, this guy's a total sham. What the hell is he doing here? Get him out. You know what I mean? And that is something that I've been working with 
for the past, I would say, five years. Luckily, I have, a, I have a great executive coach and I have great colleagues and a supportive board and things like that that have helped me. So it's less intense now than it was, but it's still very uh, much a part of my, I'd say, monthly existence to be like, is this really true that I'm the CEO <laughs> of this company? Really? Especially when you have like the spreadsheets in positive and negative directions is probably, it's yeah, like, you're just, ah. like, yeah, yeah. Me? I thought I was going to be like a hot smoking meditator e-bomb. <laughs> <laughs> hey, there's still time. <laughs> there is yeah. still, yeah, that's right. Exactly. That's my retirement plan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's, uh, so on the, on the flip side, what's something you're still struggling with that you're trying to figure out, whether it's functional or emotional with the job? For us. Or just, just with you either. You were the business, yeah, yeah. Taking the imposter syndrome as like something that I've been working on and more or less successfully, what am I currently working on? From a startup perspective, the challenge is always how do you grow faster? And then the, the constraints on that are somewhat fungible, right? You can always go raise more capital. Yeah. Like we have great investors who are willing to give us more capital, but I need to be sure that we would know what we'd do with that money before we take it. That's a complicated matrix of decisions and a lot of uncertainty. That puzzle is something that that we as a team have been working on for a number of years, like what's the right way to grow faster? How do you accelerate growth in a changing dynamic market? And then personally, I would say, what have I got to do to keep up with this opportunity? Personally, how do I need to change? How do I need to manifest? How do, what do I need to learn? Where are my blind spots? Where I'm, without even knowing it, maybe holding back the team or the organization or the executive team from being all we can be. That's like a constant question. And the thing that motivates me more than anything else is like our customers and our team want to get better. Everybody, salespeople want to close more business, sales operations people want to be more efficient, sales managers want to figure out their pipeline better, our colleagues want to get better at their job. And that inspires me to be better. And I just, the question is like, what is that thing? Like, yeah. What should I work on next? It's refreshing how open and transparent Matthew is about his identity, his strengths, and even, of course, his weaknesses. Yeah, and I don't think you can be successful without these types of things. Because like a company, there are so many things to focus on. You have to have that personal mission and personal understanding to prioritize kind of your own personal optionality. And that takes a lot of introspection and a lot of, you know, the whole concept of know thyself. And this obviously mirrors a business as well. Hmm. There, There's just so many things to improve, so many things to do, and there's just so much optionality. Yeah, and, and, and as we found, the secret really becomes having a relenting focus while also being okay with the friction of innovation and execution that's battling for mindshare and resources. Because after all, success only comes from being unrelenting with that mission. Protect the Hustle is produced by Dan Callahan and Ben Hillman, with help from Steve Sarasoli and Alyssa Chan, written by Mary Matten. Share this episode on Twitter with the hashtag ProtectIt, and we'll hook you up with some official PTH and ProfitWell swag.